One of my favorite hymns, Be Still My Soul. It would do you well to go back this week and find the words to that hymn online and just meditate on them. Uh, They're rich and uh, powerful, powerful words. Well, last week I, uh, I told you that one of the most difficult things about moving here was that we didn't have a Chick-fil-A. And lo and behold, a Chick-fil-A is coming to Woodhaven. So this week I thought that I would tell you that one of the most difficult things about moving here was that the Lions never win the Super Bowl. <laughs> and we'll see what happens. It's worth a shot, right? Got to do something. So, well, you can open up to Matthew 18. That's where we're going to be this morning. As you're opening up there, I'm sure at some point you've seen the videos online or the nature shows where a herd of water buffalo or wildebeest is being attacked by a pride of lions. Um, If you've never seen those, you can go online and find many of them. But when that happens, it's amazing to watch that the lions have a particular strategy when they attack a herd, because a a water buffalo in particular is is quite a large animal, and they have horns, and, you know, they can really mess a lion up if if a lion took on a water buffalo one-on-one. And so there's this group of the buffalo there, and the lions don't just run up and attack straight on. Instead, what they do is they they kind of spread out and they try to confuse the herd and get them moving and going in different directions. And their goal is to try to separate, hopefully, one of the baby buffalo uh, from the herd and to isolate that baby buffalo and get them get it all by itself so that they can take it down. It's much easier to take one of those that's a couple hundred pounds than a, a full-grown male, several thousand pounds. So the goal is to isolate them, and it's much easier to kill them when they're on their own. Now, there are some people today who claim to be Christians who are saying and desiring to move away from the local church, and they think that involvement in the local church is is really not that important. And they say, you can pursue Jesus on your own apart from some sort of commitment and involvement in a local church. Some of you have heard of George Barna. He's an evangelical pollster who you know, surveys evangelical Christians and tries to understand their theological beliefs and tries to understand their, their positions on things, their lifestyles, and he is really delighted with this move away from the local church. Here's what he had to say about this a few years ago. Whether a Christian is, quote, immersed in, minimally involved in, or completely disassociated from a local church is irrelevant to me and within boundaries to God. What matters is not whom you associate with, i.e., a local church, but who you are. The Bible is quite clear that it does matter who you associate with. The local church matters, and is of the utmost importance. Listen, if Jesus loves and cares for his bride, then you and I should love and care for his bride as well. And there are many reasons to be committed to a local church. 
Lots of reasons, and, and we can talk about those, and we have talked about some of those. But at least one of those reasons to be committed to a local church is that you and I need a community in our fight against sin. You can't end up out on your own thinking that you're going to effectively fight against sin. It's arrogant and stupid at the same time to think that that's going to happen. Just like that baby buffalo has to stay in the middle of the herd to be protected, you and I need the community of the local church for protection, for accountability, and to pursue us if we do go astray. Now, it's interesting, if you watch those videos, what seems to happen as the herd is moving and trying to get away from the lions, often one of the weaker buffalo will end up kind of getting confused, just like the lions planned, and moving out away from the herd. And it's amazing to watch that because the lions will center on that and pursue that buffalo, but oftentimes a couple of the bigger and older buffalo will go out after that baby buffalo and they'll hold off the lions just long enough for that buffalo to get back into the midst of the herd and to be protected. That's exactly how the church community should respond to sin in the life of one of its members. Pursuit out of love and protection. And we started talking about that process last week in Galatians chapter 6. And I want to remind you of that passage this morning. If you want to flip over there and hold your place in Matthew 18, you're welcome to. Otherwise, I'll just read it to you. Brothers, verses 1 to 3. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. This week, we're going to expand on that passage, and we're going to move from the relational aspect of fighting sin out to the community-wide aspect of fighting sin. Here's kind of the trajectory of this series. We started in the middle. The series is called Fight for Your Life. We started with a personal fight against sin, and we've moved out last week to the relational fight against sin, how we need one another in Galatians 6. And this week and next week, we're going to talk about the community and how as a herd, I'm not calling you all buffalo, but as a herd, we need one another and we need to fight together. We need to have an organized system and a way in which we fight against sin and protect one another. And we're going to find that in Matthew chapter 18. Now, some of you may be familiar with this passage. Look specifically at Matthew 18, 15. Here's the process, the, the, outline, the, the outline of this process and the steps of how we fight sin with one another and what we do if a brother or sister strays away. Verse 15, this sounds very similar to Galatians 6. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. The goal is restoration. If he listens to you, that's what you ultimately want. You want not to embarrass him, not to be arrogant toward him, but you want him to recognize his error and to come back. Stop straying. But before we can really understand this process in verses 15 to 20, which we're going to look at next week, you really need to understand what comes before it. 
Because if you just jump right in to verse 15, then you may think, man, this sounds kind of harsh. And, and this sounds sort of unloving. I mean, we're, you're talking about confronting another believer in his or her sin. And man, that just doesn't seem very kind and gracious. And, and you may be tempted to think that. But when you understand verses 1 to 14 and everything that leads up to this process in verses 15 to 20, then you'll see very clearly that it's actually an incredible act of love and grace and kindness to follow through on these steps that are outlined in verses 15 to 20. And that's what we're going to see this morning. So in this passage, verses 1 to 14 of Matthew 18, we're going to see three community commitments. These are church-wide commitments that we need to make together, three community commitments that help protect us from sin, that help us to fight sin as a group, as a body of Christ. And the first one of these is in verses 1 to 6. We need to, each one of us, see the significance of God's children. And before we can really fight sin, before we can be committed to helping the community fight sin, we have to understand who's a part of this community. How do you enter into this community? And we have to understand the value that each member of the community has. There's a specific premium and importance to each person who is a, a part of God's family. And you have to understand that before you can see the steps in verses 15 through 20. So I realize we're, we're kind of jumping right in the middle. You know, there's 17 chapters of Matthew that we haven't gone through, and we're jumping right in the middle of chapter 18, or right at the beginning of chapter 18 here. And it can be kind of hard to get your bearings as to what's going on. So I won't give you the whole background of the book of Matthew, but I will just say that Jesus has been talking a lot about the kingdom of heaven. And in chapter 17, the transfiguration has just happened. So a dramatic event where he shows his glory to his disciples. And so as you get to this point in the book of Matthew, the disciples are increasingly coming to realize that Jesus is the Messiah. I mean, they're starting to sort of think this way and recognize something is different about this guy. And Jesus is talking about a kingdom. And so they're expecting some sort of kingdom to arrive. And as they're expecting this kingdom to arrive through Jesus, probably in Jerusalem, they're thinking, because that's where the kingdom is centered. Now they're starting to think, well, what's my position going to be in the kingdom? I mean, if we're going to have a kingdom, he's got to have guys working under him, and I want to be one of those important guys. And so they ask this question in verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Something very similar to this happens a couple of chapters later in Matthew 20. You don't have to flip over there, but the mother of James and John comes to Jesus and asks if her two sons can sit next to Jesus in his kingdom and in his glory. And so it's clear here from this question and from Matthew 20 that his followers really aren't understanding the true nature of his kingdom. They're still thinking in terms of ambition, and they're thinking in terms of greatness. And so he tries to help them. Look at verse, verses 2 and 3. And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus 
calls a child into their midst in order to make a very vivid point to them. Look at the end of verse 3 again. You will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So they're talking about who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, and Jesus says, I'm not going there. Actually, what I want you to begin to understand is how you enter the kingdom. This is a matter of admission here. Jesus is concerned with how you even get into the kingdom, and that's what he's going to teach them on. So what does he say is necessary to enter the kingdom? Two things. Verse 3, unless you turn and become like children. You have to turn and you have to become like children. Now, In what way is becoming like a child necessary to enter the kingdom? We all know that there's not everything about children should be emulated. We don't want to copy and do everything that children do. There's some great things that children do, and there's some things that they need to grow out of, certain habits that they have developed and come very naturally to them that they need to grow out of and into maturity. But here in particular, Jesus is focused on the position of children, the dependency of children, and the unassuming humility of a child. Look at verse 4. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, it's true at this time that children had no status in society. I mean, they really weren't that important. They were entirely dependent on someone else for everything about life. And and that's true of children today. They don't do things without help, particularly when they're, they're quite young, like this child is here. And that's the heart of what Jesus is getting at here when he says you have to become like a child. You have to become humbly dependent on someone else for who you are and for your position. And so the pathway of the kingdom involves turning away from trusting in self, turning away from your own ambition, and recognizing your complete dependence on God and how you need him for everything. He uses this word turn here. That's the other action that has to take place. Turn and become like a child. And the turning here is describing a complete change in in this person's life. I mean, it's a a radical change here. And what Jesus is talking about is conversion. He's talking about salvation. He's talking about being born again. To enter the kingdom means I don't trust in myself any longer. I'm not confident in my own goodness and in my own abilities, my own good works, my own greatness. I forsake all of that because I recognize that I'm a sinner. I humbly come to that realization. I see my sin for what it is, and I see that my sin puts me on the outside in relationship to the kingdom. I can't do anything to enter the kingdom. I don't bring anything to God except my sin. I become like a child in that way. And so when that happens, I turn from my sin. I say, I don't want my sin anymore. I see it. I see how it's a violation of God's holiness and his glory. And I cry out to him and say, I need you. I can't do this on my own. I am dependent. 
I need the work of Jesus Christ to be applied to me. I need his righteousness. I don't want my sin anymore, and I can't do anything about it, and so I need him. That is how you enter the kingdom. And so I want to ask you this morning, I want to ask you if this turning and becoming like a child has happened to you. Has this taken place? Or are you trusting in your own goodness? Do you generally think, I'm a decent guy? Have you grown up in the church and just assume that because you're familiar with church, that everything will sort of work out in the end? Have you actually seen your sin for what it is in the eyes of God? An infinite violation of a holy, transcendent God's perfection, a breaking of his law. And when you see that, have you humbled yourself before God and said, I can't do anything about this on my own. I confess my sin to you, and I'm trusting in the cross work of Jesus Christ for salvation. This happens in a moment. This is the entry point into the kingdom. And if it's never happened to you, then you haven't entered the kingdom. It starts here. And that's the point Jesus is making. And so he wants us to understand who is a part of this kingdom and who he's concerned with in this chapter. And once he makes this point, he wants us to understand that he doesn't forsake his children. He doesn't forsake those who have recognized their sin and turned and become like children and depended fully on him for their salvation. Instead, he values them. Look at verse 5. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Now, there's a temptation here to read this and think he's talking about people who are under the age of 12. So there's a temptation to think he's saying, well, if you receive a a small person, then you're receiving me. And he's actually using the child here as an illustration to talk about anyone, no matter the age, who turns from sin and turns to him. And that's the point here. And so he's saying to them, he's using this child as an example, and the point of the passage is that he accepts those who turn from sin and turn to him. And if we claim to value God, then we ought to value those who have turned from sin and turned to him. Verse 5, whoever receives one such child, one person who has turned in my name receives me. We value those around us who have entered the kingdom. So when we receive one another, we pursue one another's good, then in that situation, we're ultimately receiving God. We receive him when we receive one another. But the opposite of receiving one another and being concerned for one another's good is found in verse 6. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, It would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. So if if turning from sin and to God is the entry point to the kingdom, then causing someone to go back to sin, the very thing they needed to be saved from, that is the ultimate wickedness in God's eyes here. It's the essence of wickedness. So in verse 6, when he says, You cause one of these little ones to sin. 
That word there actually really means to cause them to stumble. It's talking about putting something in front of another person that makes them trip. Causes them to trip up in their walk with the Lord. And if you do that, the warning is really pretty dire, isn't it? I mean, this is a pretty dramatic way to say this. It would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck. A millstone is one of those giant stones, those giant rocks that has a hole in the middle and that sits on its side. And in this time, a donkey or some animal would be tied to it and it would roll around and grind up grain. Massively heavy. And so what he's saying is, listen, it would be better for you to have that hole placed around your neck and for you to be thrown into the sea and drowned than for you to approach sin in a casual manner and think it's no big deal if you cause one of these people, one of my beloved little ones, to sin. And so there's a difference here, the opposite sides of the spectrum, in valuing God's children and causing them to sin. Those who reject God's children in this way and don't care about the sin that is being done and in fact tempt them to sin, that's the same thing as rejecting God's righteous judgment. So sin is obviously pretty serious here. And sin within the community is is a big deal. And if it's that big of a deal, then what do we do about it? And that's our, our second commitment here. We sever the stumbling blocks of sin. So we see the significance of God's children. We understand how valuable each other are in God's eyes. And if God sees you as valuable and doesn't want you to pursue sin, then what do we do as a community? We sever the stumbling blocks of sin. Look at verse 7. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptations come. Now, the word temptations here is actually the same word that's used in verse 6 to talk about the stumbling block. So it's the exact same concept there. It's temptations are those things that trip someone else up. Same idea is used here. So he's continuing the thought here. And the point is, temptations will come into the world. We live in a fallen world, and so people will be tempted to sin. But... Even though that's true and it's going to happen, you don't want to be the person who causes someone else a temptation to sin. There's an aspect of personal responsibility here. God will hold you and he will hold me responsible personally if I am the one who places a stumbling block in the path of of another believer, another person. And we don't, at least I don't use the word woe very often, I neither ride horses nor speak of judgment to others. Woe to the world. But this is the same word that's used over and over again in Revelation to talk about God's eschatological judgment coming on the entire world. It's describing horror coming upon the person who it's aimed at here. Disaster comes. So this is significant. Don't be the one who causes a stumbling block. Instead, what do we do? How do we approach sin? We take radical steps to avoid it. Look at verse 8. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off 
and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, verse 9, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. I know you've read these passages before, but just ponder with me how dramatic and how significant and how radical the response to sin and the potential of sin needs to be for each one of us individually and for us as a community. I read a story recently about a woman who lives in Ireland who, when she was 18 years old, had her finger jammed in a car door. And she had incredible chronic pain because of whatever had happened to her finger. She went to doctor after doctor, and they couldn't do anything about it. They tried all these tests. They even tried a couple of surgeries, and they could not get rid of the pain. And it was ongoing, and she said it was a 10 out of 10 every day. She was on morphine, just unbelievable pain in this finger. And so after eight years, she amputated her own finger at home. She didn't describe how she did it, but she did it, and she threw her finger into the trash bin so that they wouldn't be able to find it and reattach it. And you know what she said afterwards? I quote, ever since I have had no pain, it has been brilliant which is a very English way of putting it, isn't it? I haven't taken any painkillers. I'm grand. It is great. Now, most of you are sitting there going, wow, that was a really uncomfortable story to share. Yeesh. Now I had to talk to my kids about that at lunchtime today. That lady's crazy. Why would you use her as an example? Yes, she is crazy. But Jesus is describing a sort of radical craziness here in our approach to sin as a community, isn't he? He's obviously not encouraging physical amputation of our limbs. We know that, right? Sin ultimately resides in our hearts. And you can't just cut your hand off if it's causing you to sin and think you're going to get rid of it because it's in here. But what he's doing here is he's saying in a very dramatic, very serious fashion that we have to take this seriously. And because we take sin this seriously as a community, then when we see a brother or sister straying and going down this path, then we have to pursue them. And that's our third commitment. In verses 10 through 14. Seek the straying child of God. Look at verse 10. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. So in this passage, Jesus has set up two options for us here, right? You can receive the little ones. You can receive one another. You can love one another. Or you can cause one another to sin. You can despise one another. You can think lightly of sin and think lightly of its impact in those around you. 
You can be an instrument of sin in the lives of another person. You can approach sin casually rather than seriously. You can let sin destroy those around you rather than receiving them and loving them. And when you let sin destroy those around you, you despise them. You say, I really don't care that much about you. More interested in me. To receive one another or despise one another by ignoring sin. And then look, at, look what he says about the value of, of each person, each of his children in verse 10. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Now I don't think this is arguing that each of us have a guardian angel necessarily. But what I think he is saying here is, look... Angels, we know from Scripture, are involved in the affairs of men. They're working and acting at God's command in our lives in some way. And we don't know all the details of that, but we see that consistently throughout Scripture. And what he's saying here is, listen, if God values his children so much that he puts powerful angels involved in their lives and caring for them then shouldn't you and I value each other in the same way? Shouldn't we be concerned about one another? If God's that concerned and that passionate about holiness in the lives of his children? If God commands angels to be attendant to the needs of his followers, then how can you and I despise his followers? How can we think lightly of one another? How can we think that those around us in the church community are unimportant? If God puts this much value on us in our pursuit of holiness. So instead of despising, what do we do? And this is beautiful. Look at verse 12. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go? Interestingly enough, that word go is picked up in verse 15. Go and tell him his fault. Go, verse 12, in search of the one that went astray. And if he finds it, truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So what's the picture here? The picture is of a believer who has gone astray. It's of a believer who is pursuing sin, someone who's involved in the church who claims to be a believer at least, They're pursuing sin in some form or fashion. This person has, according to Galatians 6, been caught, trapped in a transgression. The lions are circling. They're away from the herd. This person is. They've been deceived by sin. They're not thinking straight. And the trap has been sprung. And so when this happens, when we see this happening amongst ourselves, we have two options. We can despise that person, and we can sit back in our judgment, and we can let them go, or we can go after them. We can do what God calls us to do here. We can pursue the lost sheep. We can lovingly call them to repentance. We can lovingly call them to turn from sin, become like a child, and humble themselves and come back to Christ and back to the community. Why do we do this? Because there's a difference between going astray and perishing. Look at verse 14. So 
It is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. So in verses 12 and 13, the sheep has gone astray. But in verse 14, God doesn't want the sheep to perish. Now, I don't want you to read into this that you can lose your salvation, that they go astray, and if they stay astray too long, then they lose their salvation. That's not the point. That's not what this is saying here. That's not what the Bible teaches. The point here is that there are times where God uses us as the means of bringing a straying brother or sister back. That we go after them and call them to repentance, and God uses that word from us to help them to see their sin and to turn from their sin and come back to the community to bring a straying sheep home. And let me just, you, let me tell you, you might be the person that God uses in this way. You might be the one. You might be the means that other people are praying for to bring that straying sheep home and to speak a word to them that God uses in order to bring them back. And I think it's, it's an amazing juxtaposition here. Look, back in verse 7, you and I don't be the, want to be the one through whom temptation comes, Right? We don't want to be the one who causes someone else to stumble. But on the flip side of that, God in his grace at times lets us be the one who speaks the word of truth and the straying sheep comes home. Reconciliation happens. I've told you before about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I think some of you have heard of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a pastor in Germany in the 1940s and he was actually executed by the Nazis right before the war ended. But he has this fantastic little book called Life Together. And I don't think I've ever read a better explanation of community and life together as believers and what that looks like. He paints a beautiful picture of the relationships that we have in the body and the practices that we pursue in order to grow in holiness together. But he says in that book, one of his major points is that you cannot have a Christian community that is healthy and functioning without Christians speaking the truth to one another in all the different ways that we speak the truth to one another. That doesn't only include confrontation. It includes excitement over something I've learned from the Word of God, sharing in a small group together, teaching a Sunday school class, whatever it may be. But we need to speak the Word of God to one another. In fact, he says that is the essence of spiritual community. You don't have it unless you're doing that. Here's what he says. It's long, but I'll read it to you. But God has put this word, the Bible, into the mouth of men. Listen, God has ordained that you and I are the means of transmitting God's word to one another. I mean, what's happening this morning? Another human being is speaking the word of God to our church body. God has put this word into the mouth of men in order that it may be communicated to other men. When one person is struck by the word, he speaks it to others. God has willed that we should seek and find his living word in the witness of a brother, in the mouth of man. Therefore, the Christian needs another Christian who speaks God's word to him. 
He needs him again and again. When he becomes uncertain and discouraged, for by himself, separated from the herd, he cannot help himself without belying the truth. He needs his brother man as a bearer and proclaimer of the divine word of salvation. He needs his brother solely because of Jesus Christ. The Christ in his own heart is weaker than the Christ in the word of his brother. His own heart is uncertain. His brother's is sure. So we need one another. God has given us this responsibility. He's given us this ministry so that we would help one another and ultimately so that we would properly resemble him. Look back at verse 14. So... It is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. God's will, his desire, is not that sin would conquer. His desire is that people would turn from sin into him. And if we claim to love God, if we claim to want what he wants, then we have to find ourselves in verse 14. If we claim to love God, how can we not love what God loves, which means loving his bride, his body, and loving one another, his children? So, in this passage, we've seen the importance of God's children. In verses 1 through 6, we've seen how serious sin is. And we've seen how we cannot be the instrument of sin in the life of another believer. But instead of being the instrument of sin in the life of another believer, we want to destroy sin, want to put it off, get rid of it. And when we see another believer who is stuck in sin, we want to pursue them with everything we have so that we can be like God. Because this is what he does. We pursue the straying sheep because that's exactly what God has done for each one of us. And so this... Some questions come up for me and for all of us as a local church. What sort of a local church do we want to be? Right? What sort of community do we want to be? Do we take sin seriously? That's been the whole burden of this series, to try to, to move our thinking from being casual about sin to seeing it as something that is out for our destruction. And we need each other to fight this fight. Do we value one another? Do we actually value one another? Because if we value one another as God's children, then we help one another fight sin. Are we a local church that takes care of its own by pursuing those caught in sin and calling them to repentance? Or are we, like the Corinthians, are we a church that watches someone go in sin and casually overlooks it because it's just too tough. Man, if I speak up, I don't want to ruffle feathers to do this. I think all of those questions and verses 1 to 14 prepare us to step into verses 15 to 20 next week. And verses 15 to 20 are going to help us understand our full responsibilities as a community. Couldn't be clearer. This is what God has called us to And we have to pursue those who are caught in unrepentant sin because we value what God values. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for your word. We are desperate for your wisdom, for your instruction, and we have it here in the scriptures. Work in our hearts now. Help us to see sin for what it truly is. Help us to see one another as those who are loved by you and those who need to be pursued because that's exactly what you do. We're so thankful that you have pursued us through Christ, that you have brought us to yourself, even in our sin. Work in our hearts now. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.